This episode of Demystified was made possible by our top-tier patrons, Philip Dixon and Anushka Maiden. If you want to get more Demystified content, you can subscribe to our Patreon and get bonus episodes, which are now finally coming out. They're ready. They're going to be going soon. They're back. They're finally ready. Or you can just follow us on Twitter at Demystified underscore pod. Now, back to the regularly scheduled programming. The 20th of March, 1995. Tokyo, Japan. 8am is rush hour for the people of what was and is the biggest city in the world. Japan has certainly come a long way since the fall of its empire at the end of World War II. In spite of certain lingering issues of accountability, the country positions itself as a modern, free democracy with a booming economy to match. The Tokyo subway system is absolutely ram-packed as millions of people go to work, school, university, just about every other facet of their modern lives. Having ridden that subway myself, I can say it's comprehensive and very widely used. But there's also a lingering worry about subways. They're tight, underground. If you're claustrophobic, they can be an absolute nightmare. A group of people board the subway trains as one would do, but there are people carrying sealed plastic bags. At the appointed time, they puncture the bags, releasing their contents. At first, nothing seems amiss. One man rubs his eyes, probably hay fever acting up in the springtime, but he feels itchy, then watery. He starts to panic. He can't see. The itching turns to stinging, and stinging turns to blistering pain. Others feel it too, all over their skin, in their hair, in their eyes and mouths. Something's very, very wrong. The authorities catch on quickly, but at rush hour, every station is packed with people, and evacuating will take time. 6,000 people are suffering the effects of this distressing occurrence, with some going into convulsions and beginning to choke. Some are coughing up blood, others are retching and writhing, blind and dumb. But the stations are evacuated. Given, using modern numbers, mind, over 6 million people used the Tokyo subway in a day, the fact that only 13 died as a result of this is a sign that the evacuation protocols worked as intended. But 54 were seriously injured. And whilst the number of those affected in total is around 6,000, many estimate the real number is far higher. But those who don't speak up about it have a reason for remaining silent. The police have no doubts as to who's behind this. Back in February, an old man had gone missing. 69-year-old Kiyoshi Korea was the brother of a woman who'd escaped from a cult that was already under intense police suspicion because they had attempted, and failed, to get some members into political offices and had purchased a number of properties being used for strange purposes. When Kyoshi had gotten his sister to safety, the cult began calling him several times a day, leaving threatening messages, demanding he hand his sister back to them. He'd heard rumours about what the cult did to those who tried to leave, and refused. Before he disappeared, he left a note. If I disappear, I was abducted by Om Shinrikyo. The police make their moves. Some are saying that the cult's leader, the intensely charismatic blind mystic Shoko Asahara, was tipped off about potential raids and perpetrated the subway attack to try and shake the police off his trail. If this is the plan, it fails. They raid his compounds all across the country and they could not have been prepared for what they found. If you thought last week's episode was crazy, just you wait. At the headquarters in Kamikushiki, the foot of Mount Fuji, they found chemical weapons stashes and explosives enough to kill four million people in one sitting, as well as a Russian attack helicopter. They also found an incinerator, which had been used to get rid of Kyoshi Korea. The cult had murdered him. They found still-living prisoners held in cells, millions of dollars of gold and currency, drug labs producing LSD, methamphetamines, and an attempted to truth serum, 
On the 30th of March, the chief of the National Police Agency of Japan, Takeji Kunimatsu, was shot four times near his home. He survived, if only just, but the culprit was never found. On the 23rd of April, the head of the cult's science ministry, Hideo Murai, was stabbed to death by a Yakuza member outside of the Tokyo headquarters. Two weeks later, on the 5th of May, a paper bag was found burning one of the toilets at Shinjuku Station, the busiest train station in the world, inside of which was a hydrogen cyanide device which, had it not been thankfully diffused, would have released enough gas into the ventilation system to kill 10,000 people. By the 4th of July, they were still finding undetonated chemical devices in the Tokyo subway. All of this had been linked back to Om Shinrikyu. On the 16th of May at the Kemikoshiki compound, Asahara was found hiding inside the walls of one of the buildings and was arrested. In the months following the Tokyo attack, over 150 members of the cult were arrested and charged. That very same day that he was found, a mail bomb was sent to the office of the governor of Tokyo, Yukio Aoshima. His secretary had his fingers blown off, but he survived. You might be thinking, when does this all come to an end? Well, it doesn't. In 2019, a man sympathetic to Aum Shinrikyo, which still exists to this day as Aleph, rammed his car into pedestrians in Tokyo on New Year's Day in protest of certain executions held the previous year. The previous year, Shoko Asahara and a number of other high-profile cult members had been executed after losing final appeals on charges of murder and a slew of other offences. Despite being labelled as a terrorist group by Russia, Canada, the United States and the EU, as well as a few other states and transnational groups, and being under almost constant surveillance by the Japanese police and subject to consistent raids for ever-mounting charges of corruption, abuse of members and a reluctance to renounce Asahara, the group still exists. That's why we don't know exactly how many people they've hurt in the past. Because if all the sources coming in are true, they may yet still be hurting people today, with no intention of stopping. Oh, and one more tiny note before we wrap up this insane introduction. When the Australian authorities raided an home compound in Western Australia, they found that they'd been using the ranch to mine and attempt to refine uranium. This, alongside the fact that Arm had recruited nuclear scientists and used biological and chemical weapons without remorse, led to some rather unsettling conclusions. We've gone from the ones that you've definitely heard about, Manson and Jonestown, to the one that you probably haven't have heard about, but definitely should have. This is the apogee of the danger that a cult can pose if all the pieces fall into place. Y'all know I'm not religious, but if anything is a miracle, it's that this didn't end up far worse than it already did. Today on Demystified, we look into the fact of the fiction behind the Japanese doomsday cult that tried to start World War III, Aum Shinrikyo, and its leader, Shoko Asahara. Today's episode is by far the darkest of all this season. Next episode will be crazy in other ways, don't get me wrong, but this episode takes the cake for how far a cult can go in terms of damage. We'll start, as we always do, with the beginning, and hold on to your hats, it's a bumpy ride. Before we talk about Shoko Asahara, and he absolutely is central to this cult, we need to talk about New Age religions in Japan. Next week we'll be looking at something in Korea, and the history of new religions in Asia in general is pretty interesting as a whole, but Japan gets the spotlight for this episode, for obvious reasons. So, when Japan unified after the Sengoku Jidai, the massive decades-long warring states period in the 1400s, the country entered Sakaku, the closed country period, in the 1600s, 1615, I believe was the start. 
Nobody was legally allowed to enter or leave Japan without the explicit permission of the shogun, and trade with foreigners was done only through small nanban ports, nanban meaning southern barbarian. One consequence of this was the Japanese culture became very particular and idiosyncratic. Whilst earlier in its history a whole bunch of the culture and religion of Japan, and of course the language could be traced to developments in China and the Korean Peninsula, the next 200 years saw an intentionally isolated development. The religions present in Japan, Buddhism, Shintoism, and Confucianism, with a host of smaller shamanic and animistic beliefs present in places like Hokkaido or Ryukyu, all enjoyed something of a plurality of worship. The main restriction at this time was on Christianity. Quick summary. Buddhism is Buddhism, originated in India and Nepal in the 4th century BC and is the fourth biggest religion in the world. Dharma, Karma, the Samsara cycle, and the search for enlightenment. Shintoism is a religion indigenous to Japan that's based on polytheism and the traditional mythology of the islands, heavily involved with the country's political institutions for a lot of Japan's history because it was always strongly associated with the divine right to rule of Japan's imperial family, whose dynasty stretches back to 660 BC as they found it at the earliest. Confucianism is often said to be more like a social system than a religion proper. Based on the teachings of Kong Fu Tzu in 400s BC China, it stresses the importance of social relations and hierarchies and knowing and adhering to your own place within those. Japan's persecution of Christians is well documented. If you look at the subject of a future bonus episode, The Taiping Rebellion, you might be forgiven for thinking that there was some logic behind that. Basically, the worry was that power-hungry daimyos, local lords, would convert to Christianity and use that newfound religion to curry favour with the infamously evangelical Europeans, who would then give them modern weapons to overthrow the shogun. Not exactly what happened in Taiping, but that killed conservatively 20 million people, so best not emulated, perhaps. But despite this, the new religions did grow under the Bakumatsu period, the late days of the shogunate. A number of smaller religions based in Shinto roots but syncretized with other traditional beliefs started to crop up. This all, by the way, ended up becoming a moot point with the overthrow of the shogun and the Meiji Restoration in the latter half of the 19th century, and then Japan ended its imperial phase. I don't have time to cover the history of the Empire of Japan and its unique relationship with colonialism, but World War II happens and that's where we jump back in. After World War II, the United States spent the next eight years occupying Japan and forcefully rebuilding it. A strong Japan would allow the United States to project power into the Pacific and ward off the Soviet Union. But the next big development was Japan's economy. Thanks to the US's efforts to rebuild it and the Korean War massively increasing demand for Japan to manufacture munitions for the United Nations forces, Japan underwent the so-called post-war economic miracle. By the 1980s, Japan was the second largest economy in the world. From 1955 to 1970, the average household consumption of a Japanese family doubled. See, the government would loan to banks, who would then loan to business conglomerates, called zaibatsus, reformed in the wake of lax anti-monopoly laws, which meant that huge swaths of industrialization were done very, very quickly, and government oversight ensured that the development in heavy industry spread to other parts of the economy. Haito Ikeda, the Prime Minister of Japan from 60 to 64, oversaw much of the development as an economic minister and as a prime minister. He ensured that the short-term profits were ignored in favor of long-term planning, and huge amounts of money were pumped into public infrastructure. Highways, the Shinkansen high-speed rail system, the subway system, ports, airports, and dams all got built. The result of that was that Japan saw a huge burst of growth, not just on the national level, but at the individual level as well. Taxes went down, the individual was now a consumer. Why is this important? Well, because some scholars have linked this post-war economic miracle to the growth of new religions in Japan. The country, despite some fears among older generations of the influence of foreigners in state affairs, was more open than it historically had been and all of it seemed to be a good thing, out with the old, in with the new. 
Another thing to mention is that the state-mandated Shinto religion, which had been the case under the imperial administration, was forcefully abolished by the US troops during the occupation. The emperor was no longer a living deity, and this was emphasized by the Americans. Finally, the US occupation had another effect. Douglas MacArthur, crazy US general who wanted to nuke China, made calls for Christian missionaries to come to Japan to spread the good word. This was partly political. Much like the reason that Christians were chosen to lead South Korea and South Vietnam, in America's minds, Christianity was the antithesis of communism. Thus, a country of Christians is a bulwark against communism, so Japan should be Christian. However, whilst Christianity did have some effects with Catholics and Jehovah's Witnesses having around 500,000 and 200,000 adherents today respectively, the big influence was on the theology of religions based in Buddhism and Shintoism, especially something new to both faiths, apocalypticism. Yep, today's cult is absolutely a doomsday cult in the truest sense of the word. You see, in Buddhism, the world moves in cycles, and escaping the cycle is what's important. There's not really a point at which the world ends, as it were, with the exception of possibly everything in the universe returning to its source outside the reincarnation cycle. But there's no big, explosive apocalypse. Shintoism too, there's no Ragnarok, no violent, furious, predicted end times. Neither religion had previously advertised the idea that the end of the world, or at least a big societal upheaval, was either imminent or desirable, and the mainstreams of both religions still don't. This was a big change in the game of New Age Japanese religions, Buddhist and Shinto roots to sell better to the traditional faiths with Christian end times theology. Another element to consider here is politics. After the war, the National Diet, Japan's parliament that had previously been a lame duck giving way to the emperor, army, and navy, was now the political machine to be courted, and these new religions started to create political parties. For example, the Komeito Party represents the religion of Sokakakai, the Value Creation Society, a neo-Buddhist new religion that has at least 12 million adherents today. The Komeito Party is a member of the coalition that currently consists the government of Japan. So, new religions in Japan in the 80s are A cool as hell, B, a great way to gain political influence, and C, hugely subsidized by both the general zeitgeist, which is being maintained by the Japanese government, and, historically, by the US government. This is all important context for what happens later. Now we can get into the cult itself, and we start, as always, with the charismatic leader. Shoko Asahara was born Chitsuo Matsumoto on the 2nd of March 1955 to a family on the verge of poverty on the island of Kyushu. Not only were they a large family, their main source of income was traditional textiles, not a particularly lucrative trade. But to make things worse for the kid, he was almost completely blind. He had infantile glaucoma, one eye barely had vision, the other had no vision at all. As a result, he was shipped off to a school for the blind at a young age. And the problems started right away. He was a bully, and would frequently beat up and steal money from other students. But alongside this violent streak was... Charisma. Even as a child, his teachers noted that a lot of the violence he did was carried out by other students on his behalf. When he spoke, people listened. So, charismatic? Yes. When he graduated at the age of 22, he took up acupuncture and Chinese traditional medicine, basically quackery, but these were common professions for the blind, as it was required that sight beyond sight be possessed to see the path of the qi throughout the body, this, if you were blind, you could basically say, oh yes, well I can't see in the physical world, but I can see in the spiritual world. So it was fairly common, apparently at the time, for blind people to go into those sorts of professions. He married and had kids, and was living a fairly buttoned-down life for a blind mystical quack doctor. That is, until he was fined 200,000 yen for selling unregulated drugs and practicing pharmacy without a license in 1981. 
Matsumoto wanted to get away for a while. Supporting his family was tricky, and his interest in the occult and supernatural had been steadily growing beyond the required reading for his profession. He spent much of his free time studying esoteric religious traditions, Taoism and Chinese astrology, Christian theology, Western mysticism, that kind of thing. He joined a group called Aegon Shu, a new religion founded in the 50s based off of Buddhism and Hinduism that had, in 1981, been granted official religious status in Japan. He enjoyed the teachings and practices, becoming a devout follower, but realized he could exercise his old habit of controlling people and extorting them if he founded his own religion. So in 1984, he founded Om Shin Sen the Om Immortal Mountain Wizard Association, as it's literally written. I'm not making that up. He left his wife and family behind in 1982 to go to India to spend two years finding himself, and after this return, he changed his name to Shoko Asahara. In 1987, the group rebranded to Om Shinrikyo, which is what we'll be calling it from now on, or just Om. The early days were slow, with most of the time being spent offering meditation classes and yoga lessons, but things picked up speed in 1989 when the Tokyo Metropolitan Government, after a lengthy appeals process, finally agreed to recognize his practice as an official religion. This led to the founding of a monastic sect of the religion. Asahara had members ordained as priests, but crucially allowed lay followers to take in sermons and meditations. He leveraged his charisma for his own ends again, taking on TV appearances and giving magazine interviews. Then, he started to target universities, giving guest lectures on spirituality and philosophy, and a crucial twist happens here. Now, remember all the other cults' appeals? Manson went after the forgotten in society, down-and-out would-be hippies. Jim Jones made himself a civil rights legend and accrued a large minority following. The Rajneesh threw his net wide, taking in all comers and bussing them in when necessary. Asahara went the exact opposite direction. He positioned Ulm as a social club for the elites. He targeted the middle class, the climbers. Ulm wasn't for the blockheaded lower classes who wouldn't get it. It was for those with refined sensibilities, their finger on the pulse of Japanese society who would dare to be different. This branding was important because the membership dues coming in made a pretty penny. Ulm was a religion for the rich, the educated, the powerful, and Asahara actively courted that demographic. The PR machine was in full swing. Despite appearing controversial to some, manga and anime themes of science fiction, world-ending battles, and modern living were fully embraced in magazines printed by Ohm. Yep, anime and manga had a hand in selling this. Around this time, in the late 80s, Asahara went deep into the Christian end times philosophy and biblical prophecies. He also got really into conspiracy theories, and this is where the first tie into modern-day cults comes in. He railed against any group he could, the Freemasons, the Jews, the Dutch. Why the Dutch? traditionally representative of foreigners in Japan. The British royal family, for some reason, and every other religion in Japan all were apparently involved in a big conspiracy to suppress his teachings, and they all had to be confronted. Here we need to look at what Ohm actually believed, and it's a bit weird, because of course it is. The mission statement of Asahara was to restore traditional Buddhism, but to do this he employed New Age Christian rhetoric. Taking aesthetic elements from Indian and Tibetan Buddhism, and using the figure of Shiva, the destroyer of Hinduism, as his main object of worship, he created a syncretic religion. He frequently used Western ideas and Christian labels, calling himself the Lamb of God and taking inspiration from the predictions of Nostradamus, shout out to season 2. The group positioned themselves as Japanese Buddhists first and foremost. This is important, because however avant-garde they might have been, they didn't want to scare off any potential members. The cult had a doomsday prophecy. The US would trigger a third world war, a nuclear conflict that they called the Armageddon, right out of the Bible, that would destroy everyone in the world except for Asahara and his followers. By taking their sins onto himself and absolving him, he would exchange that sin for spiritual power which he would give to his followers to let them survive the end times. 
Some serious concept warping then happens here, by the way. One element that they took from Buddhism and twisted was the idea of saving someone from producing bad karma. In this way, they justified killing their opponents, basically saying, my goal is so morally righteous that if I kill you, I'm preventing you from becoming a bad person, which is doing you a favor. Aum Shinrikyo, by the way, translates literally to Aum the Supreme Truth, a slightly catchier and less silly name than before. So how do we get from this insane end times prophecy to what actually happened in 1995? Well, the ride gets bumpier. Two versions of Aum began to develop in the early 90s. The outward-facing cult of the lay practitioner was kindly, friendly, and evangelical. They positioned themselves like any other neo-religion, harmless god-botherers who just wanted to teach you about yoga and invite you into their cool, exclusive, brand new club, which had all the nicest things. Behind the scenes, however, a far darker inner circle grew and fermented, at the explicit behest and oversight of Asahara. People were intentionally and forcefully given LSD to incite visions. They would be beaten physically, hung upside down, and shocked with electrodes. To progress through the ranks of the cult, you had to prove your loyalty. This involved giving over massive sums of money if you could, and at its peak, the cult had a net worth of over a billion US dollars. The most lurid accounts we have, some of which are verified, had members drinking Asahara's blood, which he said contained special properties, and his bathwater being dropped into boiling water and being locked into isolation rooms. Between constant physical stress and the force-feeding of hallucinogens and the complete domination of the finance and lives of their members, the brainwashing was swift and effective. Now, having heard some of our previous episodes, some of you might be wondering how this sort of brainwashing works. Why do people who get physically assaulted, extorted for money, and force-fed drugs follow a cult leader? Well, it's a strange quirk of the brain. Benjamin Franklin was apparently one of the first to write on this effect. Essentially, if you undergo some kind of inconvenience for someone else, no matter how drastic, your brain actually makes you like them more to justify the expended effort. If you ask someone for a small, easy-to-achieve favor, it might actually increase their opinion of you, because why would they help you if they didn't like you? Conversely, if you slight someone, even accidentally, it actually makes you think less of them, because your brain says, well, I wouldn't hurt them if they were my friend, so they must not be my friend even if they are, even if it's an accident. In this way, when a cult forces its members to undergo extreme physical pain or social difficulty, that pain can reinforce faith in the cult because the brain says, why would I be doing this if it wasn't worth it? It's essentially a kind of sunk cost fallacy. We as humans don't like being wrong. The idea that being dropped into boiling water whilst tripping on LSD was a waste of time is actually less palatable than the idea that Shoko Asahara is a living god for one made to undergo that. The group laundered their money with the help of the Yakuza, the organized crime syndicates prevalent in Japan. Much gets made about the so-called honor of the Yakuza and their own PR efforts to paint themselves as benevolent thieves of honor work very well, but at the end of the day, they're another kind of criminal syndicate, and Ong paid good money to use their facilities. Under the guise of yoga centers, the money would be funneled through as legitimate income, though much of it had been under-the-table payments, the worst of which was actual ransom money for people who had been kidnapped. The first truly dark event happens in February of 1989. A cult member who tried to leave was murdered, and a threshold crossed. Shuji Taguchi had tried to escape, but Asahara refused to allow the secrets of the cult exposed and had him strangled. Rumors of the violence against members, extortion, kidnapping, and a litany of other potential crimes led Tsutsumi Sakamoto, an anti-cult lawyer, to threaten to bankrupt the group with a class-action lawsuit representing the families of those held by Ohm against their will. 
In October of 1989, Sakamoto gave an interview to the Tokyo Broadcasting System, a Japanese TV network, on the cult. They showed it to Aum in secret, and they got the interview pulled from the air. Among other things, Sakamoto had done a blood test on Asahara to prove that his blood didn't contain its special properties. That Asahara resented to this has some strange implications, but when the news came back that Sakamoto had succeeded in his goal, Asahara made every effort to prevent that news from getting out. Speaking as someone doing an MA in international journalism regarding this breach of source confidentiality, do not ever do this. Even if you're worried about offending a religious sect or facing litigation, not protecting your sources is the worst thing you can do because it leads to what happened next. It's speculated that the cult, by the way, had a man on the inside in the station, and that that influenced events to come, including news coverage of the group. Otherwise, we don't know exactly why TBS broke source confidentiality and informed the cult. In the same month of October, Sakamoto, his wife, and their 14-month-old child disappeared after a break-in in their apartment. The truth of the disappearance was uncovered in the aftermath of the 1995 police raids. The three had been brutally murdered by the cult. That case went unsolved for six years, but in that time many started to suspect the cult. After all, they were the obvious suspects, no? He had launched a public campaign, as he had done against several other cults before successfully, to try and get people being held against their will to be released. Then he and his whole family disappear into thin air. Over the next few years, a slew of assassinations were planned and some executed by the cult. The head of Soko Kakai, a cartoonist who'd made fun of them, and a number of others were all drawn up on a hit list. They all managed to survive despite attempts on their life. Beyond Japan, a number of other countries saw interest in the cult. The Russian-speaking world in particular noted several thousand members in as recently as 2016 countries like Russia, Ukraine, and East Germany, before unification of course, had experienced numbers of the cult being notified. Beyond that, the cult acquired the Banjawan Station in Western Australia, far out in the deserts of the outback. In 1993, they purchased the land 350 kilometers north of Kalgoorlie, which you may remember from our episode on Lassiter's Reef. Here, they tested and developed chemical weapons in secret, as well as mining uranium. Australia has loads of the stuff, interestingly, and the cult wanted their hands on it. Why? Yeah, don't worry about it. On the 28th of May 1993, a strange seismic event occurred, having emanated from just south of that property. Whilst there is no confirmed consensus on what exactly caused that event, one theory that is yet to be fully dismissed is that it was a nuclear test. It was too big for a mine collapse, too inconsistent with the seismic nature of Western Australia, and a lack of physical evidence suggests it wasn't an asteroid. Given that we know that Ohm was mining uranium and had recruited nuclear physicists, asks a lot of questions. For the sake of fairness, though, it has also been reported that the Australian police found no research on the property to indicate a nuclear test, and other theories have been suggested to be more likely than that. Still, food for thought, given that Ohm, along with many other cults, thought that they would need to get the ball rolling on the apocalypse. In that same year, they stepped things up. A failed attempt at causing an anthrax epidemic in Tokyo led to their manufacturing sarin and VX nerve gas, highly dangerous weapons. They also tried to mass-produce assault rifles, but that failed. They then tested these chemicals on sheep at the Banjuaran station. When they were ready, the next major incident occurred. On the night of the 27th of June, the cult used a converted refrigerator truck to spray clouds of gas into the city of Matsumoto in Nagano Prefecture. In the neighbourhood they targeted lived prominent judges in a civil trial over real estate that was expected to go against the cult, and they were taking no chances. The only man charged in the immediate period was an innocent man, a salesman named Yoshiki Kono, and he and his wife were both victims of the attack. Again, the 1995 raids were what vindicated him. This was a major failing of the Japanese justice system, by the way, possibly again due to Om's influence. The Nagano Police Department labelled Kono as the suspect number one, 
despite him not knowing the first thing about chemistry and his wife having been mortally wounded in the attack. She was comatose until she died in 2008. Despite Kono having been vindicated in 1995, he didn't get an official apology until 2002. Azahara had tried to break into politics. In February of 1990, Japan saw a new series of elections for the Diet. Oh made sure to have members on the ballot. But they failed. Very badly. Despite having tens of thousands of members, they received a mere handful of votes and made no impact on the overall political landscape whatsoever. Whether this influenced later events, let you be the judge of that. But back to the main timeline. In 1994, the cult was continuing to use their nerve agents to kill suspected spies and dissidents. Two were injured and one killed in an attack against a potential enemy of the group. Then we get to the death of Kyoshi Kariya from our intro. The 69-year-old was sheltering his sister, an old escapee, and refused to give her up to the cult. For this, he was kidnapped, murdered, and incinerated in a high-power microwave oven. Finally, we get to 1995 and the Tokyo subway. On the 20th of March, all members snuck onto the Tokyo subway and punctured plastic bags full of a nerve agent similar to sarin. 13 died, 54 were injured, and hundreds to thousands more were affected. Again, with the numbers possibly affected, the fact that so few were hurt is cold comfort, but a little bit of comfort nonetheless. The authorities made the decision to stop the trains from moving when the nature of the problem was discovered. This did mean that those in the trains were affected and being stuck with the gas, but it bought vital time for those unaffected to be evacuated and the remaining trains to be shut down. This choice, although it possibly endangered those already hit by the gas, may have saved lives in the long run. This was the highest loss of civilian life in Japan since the firebombing of Tokyo in World War II. Thankfully, though, since the Matsumoto incident, Japanese authorities were prepared for another poisoning, so within hours every hospital in Tokyo was outfitted to deal with the incoming casualties. Why had the cult done this? Well, there were several reasons suggested. Firstly, Asahara's predictions. He'd said the world would end in 1995 due to a war started by weapons of mass destruction. Much like Jim Jones and Charles Manson, when a prediction is made, you kind of have to follow through, otherwise you lose your followers. As an example of that happening, take Harold Camping, the Christian church leader whose end-of-the-world predictions failed to come through. Before he died, his ministry collapsed because he was made a fool of when the world didn't end. Another reason was supposedly that Asahara had been tipped off that the Japanese police would soon be raiding his compounds in and around the country. They had been previously turning a blind eye towards his activities, again possibly due to infiltration of the police by the cult, but the mounting disappearances and murders were becoming too much to stomach. So Asahara would launch an attack to distract the police. This backfired, if it was the plan, and it led the police straight to him. Whatever the reason though, there was no saving the cult. Everything came crashing down in the days, weeks and months that followed. Less than 48 hours after the attack, 200 cultists were arrested in the immediate aftermath, fewer were charged in the end. The facility at Kamikushiki was found to be storing small arms, explosives, chemical weapons, and even a Soviet-era attack and transport helicopter. It took several months for Asahara to be found. He had been hiding behind a false wall in the walls of the Kamikushiki compound. Spooky, eh? But this didn't stop home. As we discussed earlier, several conventional and chemical attacks were perpetrated by the cult after this had happened. For a time, Asahara's daughter led the cult at the age of 13, and was allegedly just as, if not more so, violent. This ended after she was taken into custody, for her own sake. Now we get to the trial. The trial began in 1996 as Aum declared bankruptcy and had its status as a religion stripped by the Japanese government. Azahara began by attempting to be a Charles Manson. He frequently interrupted proceedings by going on long, self-indulgent rants. When it became clear that that wasn't working, he didn't about-face. In 2000, he took a sort of vow of silence. In 2004, he was sentenced to death by hanging, and appeals failed in 2006. 
Japan's death sentence is kind of unique, as they tend to reserve it for only the most horrific instances of the most terrible crimes. Clearly, they thought it was justified. I have my own opinion on the death penalty. To me, it is always wrong, for reasons of justice. For instance, you can't ever be sure that you're 100% right. Imagine if poor Kiyoshi Kariya, who was himself an advocate against the death penalty, had been executed for his false accusation. I won't dispute, however, that the world could well have done without the sinister presence of Shoko Asahara and is a better place for having it removed. He suffered a mental breakdown. He refused to eat unless fed, refused to see or speak to anyone, and even stopped bathing. He started wearing adult diapers and soiled himself frequently. That's true, by the way. He was executed on the 6th of July 2018, alongside six other members of the cult. What is to happen to the remains remains a mystery. Azahara endowed those remains to his fourth daughter, who by all accounts has renounced him and plans to bury him at sea. His wife, however, and some of his other children have disputed this, but the worry is that they'll intend to build him a shrine, and given the current disputes around the cult still worshipping him, there is a big risk of that. And so, as of right now, the remains are in possession of the Japanese authorities. Amshin Rikyo exists today. Aleph, the organisation that came from their rotting carcass, has 1,500 members and nominally rejects Asahara, but continuous investigations by authorities of various countries, from Japan to Russia to the US to the EU, have found that many smaller sects still worship him and his teachings. On the 1st of January 2019, Kazuhiro Kusakabe intentionally rammed pedestrians in Tokyo as a, quote, retaliation for an execution. He didn't specify who, but evidence points to it having been Asahara and his conspirators. Nine people were injured, but, thankfully, nobody suffered any worse. So that's the story of one of the most powerful cults in world history, Aum Shinrikyo, and its equally crazy leader, Shoko Asahara. The blind mystic whose word brought people to ruin and whose dark plans led to untold suffering. What can we learn from this story? Well, let's look at Asahara first and foremost. The archetypal charismatic leader, charisma, was all he had, as his blindness caused him both problems and certain advantages from a young age. It belied his true intentions. When one generally considers a blind man, one does not expect something sinister lurking beneath a seemingly helpless exterior. This isn't, by the way, to belittle blind or vision-impaired people, but most people's assumptions about the blind tend to be of needing assistance, and this could have contributed as to why so many were able to be so easily manipulated by him. Take, for instance, the character of Stephen in Quentin Tarantino's 2012 film Django Unchained. Stephen is a slave who secretly manipulates the ignorant, naive slave owner Calvin Candy by pretending to be an infirm and senile old man whilst really acting as a grey eminence over the plantation, manipulating things behind the scenes. Hazahara was a bully from a young age. I don't know why, and maybe there is no reason. That's a question we haven't really gotten into, isn't it? Is one born evil? Was he born to be a cult leader from the beginning of his life? Did his blindness influence his life path? It influenced his career, that's for sure. Blind men in Japan often took to mystical practices in lieu of not actually being able to perform more practical work for fairly obvious reasons. But this leads us to Asahara's supposed spiritual awakening in 1981-82. As a primer for this, I watched the YouTube channel Biographics video on him, and they seemed to imply that to an extent that awakening was engineered. He didn't really believe in it. It was another excuse to manipulate people. And I get that. He joined a religious order and advanced through it, but when he wasn't getting what he signed up for, he just made his own. This leads me to my answer of our second and usual question. Did Asahara really believe what he was preaching? 
I think that he believed in himself, that he was, in fact, divine and untouchable. But beyond that, it seems to have all been manufactured for maximum control. He carefully curated his membership to include maximum powerful people for minimum input. From the earliest days, the cult was hurting people and extorting them to impose their will on their members, with a kind of Stockholm syndrome preventing them from leaving. The gathering of weapons seems to have been because he thought a confrontation of some kind was inevitable. His initial prediction was that the US would start the world war by nuking Japan or some other nearby country, but when that didn't come to pass, he prompted his own cult into action, I believe, so that he wouldn't be seen as wrong, because, much like last week, he couldn't be. It all seems to have been in service of his own power, his own accumulation. Had he succeeded in getting into politics, maybe he would have tried that on for size. As it stands, he failed and took another route. Again, mentioning the Biographics video, their assessment was that this failure in politics somewhat triggered his lust for revenge against the people of Tokyo. Maybe worth thinking about, but I don't know how true that is, given that he was already hurting people and possibly murdering them as far back as 89, when 1990 was the election. The real nuts thing, though, is they're still around today, even after the rebranding. With Osho International, I do get that nobody actually died under Rajneesh's tenure that we know of, and his consistent excuse was that he never really knew what was going on, so maybe you could still argue that there's a reason for the religion to exist. With Manson and Jones, they either all went to prison or all died, so nobody's left to worship. With Aleph, though, even though the modern organization claims to have divorced themselves from Asahara, they're perpetually being raided by the Japanese authorities for various other charges, as well as other authorities around the world, including the fact that they apparently have not fully renounced the teachings of Shoko Asahara, who, at the most basic, unproblematic level, and this is really saying something, was an anti-Semitic conspiracy theorist. At the most unproblematic, beyond the murder and the terrorism and all the other things. What's to be gained? From that, surely one must see that Asahara's teachings are bogus, right? Why are people still into it today? Well, I think that might be that dark effect that some of these things can have from people cropping back up. Humans don't like the idea that suffering is for nothing, even if it's people we've never met. So people read the story and paradoxically they assume there must be some merit to the madness and the megalomania to justify to themselves that such an awful thing happened. And that's the first takeaway we have to have from this story, I think. We must appreciate the human causes. It's very easy to get lost in lurid stories of rituals and mysticism and magic, but at the end of the day, it's humans hurting humans. And which humans here? The upper and middle classes. In previous weeks, we've seen the marginalized, the lower classes get roped into this, but now it's a completely different segment of society. The cult and their members can come from anywhere and join for any reason. A lot of people checked out Aum because it was zeitgeisty, it was hip, it was new, it was cool. Some joined, hint hint, today's moral of the story, because they thought it was the ticket to the top. Previous cults or just new age religious movements had managed to gain mainstream political success, even lasting political success, so why wouldn't they? So what if you have to turn a blind eye to a few kidnappings here, a few poisonings there? But history doesn't look kindly on those who betray the innocent for political power. But it's also important to note here that just because a religion is new doesn't mean that it is a cult. That other organization I'm targeted for its attack, Sokokakai, has 12 million members and seems pretty much harmless, and I did have a look. They've even worked with the UN to campaign against nuclear weapons, the exact opposite of all my guess. When they started out, people accused them of being a cult because they were a weird new religion, and I'm not a fan of their political wings, more socially conservative values. But it all 
seems to be above board, from what I could find, at least at a basic reading. No worse than any other political or religious group, that is. As a teen, I was pretty interested in Buddhism. I considered myself a Buddhist for a time. It wasn't just a fad, as well. I knew I was LGBT for some of that time, having major sexuality and gender identity issues, and was also curious about the metaphysical. So I looked at Buddhism. It offered an opinion on the nature of the world, a fairly easy-to-follow set of moral principles that had no major flaws in them, and the Dalai Lama, the leader of Tibetan Buddhism and a major figure in the religion in general, said that LGBT people were no less than cis or straight people. Why did I give it up? I couldn't convince myself about the actual metaphysics. I didn't believe in reincarnation. I don't believe in afterlives or souls or even a god, let alone any number of gods. I'm now secure in my identity as a bi trans woman and as an atheist. But to me, it always stood out as a religion that defined itself by that live and let live attitude, and that sat well with me. Which is why it so discomforts me to see when people do bad things in the name of Buddhism. This incident is one of those times. I know as well as any that Asahara didn't buy what he was selling, but his followers certainly did. They saw themselves as good Buddhists. Remember what I mentioned earlier about that corrupted doctrine? Killing people who are your opponents is good because it stops them from accruing bad karma. Isn't that so antithetical to the whole purpose of Buddhism if you think about it for even one second? And yet, that's the way it was. So let that be the final lesson for today. No person is beyond reproach, no matter the starting point. If someone in your camp starts suggesting things beyond the pale, it is not on you to defend them for it. More specifically with cults, if someone you know or love has started going off the deep end, it's not always helpful to excuse it by saying, oh, well, what's the harm? It's just a different opinion, different way of thinking. The lessons of history take a while to learn. The lesson of this dark story may just be that. As we saw earlier with the psychological tricks of the brain, one might not even realise that one's in the quicksand. Except, perhaps, when the light goes out as you sink below the surface. On that cheery note, we close the book for now at least on Amshin Rikyo the Japanese doomsday cult that tried to end the world. On the next episode, we'll be rounding out the season with a story that's a little less depressing and terrifying as this one, but no less crazy in some ways. Stay tuned. This episode of Demystified was written, recorded, and edited by me, Ashley Styles. It was hosted by Wizard Studios, and the music came from ProductionCrate.com. Go to ProductionCrate.com for all of your royalty-free music needs. Follow us on Twitter at Demystified underscore pod, and support us on Patreon from as little as £1 a month at Demystified Podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.